0: to the 31st episode of Rising Tide, the ocean podcast. This is David Helvarg here with my co-host, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Well, hello there. And 20 years ago, I wrote an article for Sierra Magazine on the collapse of the white abalone titled Pan-Fried to Extinction. This month, I got to write a follow-up on the 20-year effort that's now taken place to reintroduce this endangered species of marine snail into the ocean. One of the major players is the White Abalone Culture Lab at UC Davis's Bodega Bay Marine Lab in Northern California. Its director and lead scientist is Dr. Christine Aquilino, who runs their White Abalone Captive Breeding Program. Kristen uh, works with a range of partners, including state and federal agencies, tribal nations, aquariums. Uh, she's also a NOAA Species in the Spotlight hero. So Kristen, uh, what kind of culture do white abalones have?
1: <laughs> well, I'm a little biased, but I think they're the most adorable marine snail that we have on this planet. And I have the privilege of running a very specialized nursery and fertility clinic to help save their species.
0: And so, and it's called the culture lab. What what do we actually mean by a culture lab?
1: Well, we're culturing them, we're creating new babies. Our hope is that we can take some of the very few white abalone that are left in the wild and bring them into my laboratory and similar laboratories throughout California to breed them and that the babies that we create will go back into the ocean and help populate the ocean and help save the species. How many different species of abalone do we have on the west coast? We have seven species of abalone on the west coast of North America. Most of them have been heavily overfished and many of them are imperiled. So, We are doing a lot to save the white abalone. There are also breeding programs and restoration programs going on for many of the other species on the West Coast of North America.
0: Because we've been eating abalone a long time. I mean, there's, I mean, not as long as they've been around. They've been around for a hundred million years. Their fragments are found in rocks. Uh, Native Californians were, you know, eating them 10,000 years ago, at least. And their shells are found in their middens but it's really only the last century that we've really sort of pounded them down, pounded and pan-fried them. What, what happened?
1: Well, people developed a taste for these animals. Um, people have always had a taste for these animals. I, maybe I should start by saying that people have had a really strong interaction with abalone for as long as people in abalone have existed in the same place together. Native people have cultures, traditions, origin stories that revolve around abalone people tend to really connect to these animals. They're really special and they're really delicious. And apparently the white abalone was the most delicious of all of our North American species of abalone, which is why it was heavily targeted. And in fact, during the commercial fishery, white abalone fetched the highest price at market more than any other abalone species.
2: When we look at the abalone shells, how can you tell the difference between a
1: white and the other six species? This is a great question. So the other species have names like pink abalone and green abalone and red abalone. And sometimes that's deceptive because their shell color does not always align with the color in their common name. We often look at the shell shape to tell what species they are abalone have a series of holes on the top of their shells called respiratory pores. Water goes through those holes to go over their gills and help them respire. And that's also where they release gametes, eggs and sperm, and their feces. And how many of those holes are open can help us tell what species it is as well. We think that white abalone are called white abalone because the pearl of their shell is relatively white compared to other species of abalone, and because their tissue, their soft tissue is more light colored than some of the other abalone species. When you come across an abalone in the ocean, it looks a lot like a rock or a muppet, as I like to say, because it can be completely covered with sponges and worms and clams and algae, all sorts of things that make it almost indistinguishable from the rest of the substrate around it. But if you come across a white abalone in the wild because of that white tissue that's just peeking through those respiratory pores, you might see a series of four to five little round white circles. And that might let you know that that's an abalone there as opposed to the rock next to it.
0: This is the scary part of it, is that when I moved to California in the 70s, um, abalone was part of the sort of cultural cuisine, You know, barbecuing and fruit salads and avocados and abalone. And it was common, we lived in a cliff house in San Diego, we had shells lining the, the window looking out. Um, on the ocean. And people really believe that broadcast spawners, uh, mollusks and other shellfish that put their eggs and gametes in the water were so fecund and productive, they couldn't go extinct. And obviously, we didn't know what we were talking about. Um, They need to be very close together. And as our appetites increased, we literally, as I wrote, almost pan fry them to extinction. It was 99% 99% of the population you were saying by 1980 was extinct. How how, how did uh, we give them endangered species status and how did we begin this long, slow recovery process?
1: Yeah, as you said, I mean, like the, the song went, the more we take, the more they make. We thought we could never deplete this abundant species. Some of this is because we didn't, and I have to be careful here when we say we, um, people who were consuming and, and harvesting white abalone in great abundances in the 1960s and 70s didn't necessarily have an appreciation for what those populations looked like before the extirpation of otters. And that plays a role in this. What is our baseline? Otters were our important predators of abalone and probably before the Russians and Spaniards hunted all of the otters to near extinction on the west coast of North America, there were probably fewer abalone. They were probably smaller. They were down in nooks and crannies. And they were released from this predation pressure when the, uh, when the otters were extirpated and their populations boomed. And I think that that's the baseline that some of the fishing regulations were made off of. And it was a false baseline. That wasn't actually a sustainable population to begin with. We also didn't have a good understanding at that time of recruitment dynamics. So when I say recruitment dynamics, it means how many of these eggs and sperm, the millions of babies that an abalone might make every year actually grow to adulthood. When an abalone spawns, David, you mentioned it's a broadcast spawner. It sends its eggs and sperm into the water column. Those eggs and sperm have to find each other in the ocean. If those abalone are more than a meter or two apart, those gametes probably aren't going to find one another abalone are terrible at long distance relationships. So abalone have to be in high enough densities, close enough together that when they do spawn, their offspring can become beings, that their eggs can be fertilized. And then that tiny microscopic egg, which is about the size of a vanilla bean seed. Next time you have a nice bowl of ice cream with real vanilla bean seeds in it, look at how small those seeds are. That's how an abalone starts its life. That little tiny being has to survive for an entire week floating around in the ocean. And it doesn't eat for that week. It has a yolk from its mom, much like a chicken egg has a yolk. So for an entire week, it's floating around in the ocean. It's consuming this yolk from its mom as it develops a shell for the first time, as it develops eyes for the first time, as it grows. And at the end of that week, when it's still not much bigger than a vanilla bean seed, it has to find the perfect place to settle and metamorphosed into a crawling snail, much like a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. An abalone in the first week of life becomes, goes from something that swims and doesn't eat to something that crawls and eats for the first time. That's an incredibly energetically costly performance that it has to go through with just yolk from mom. And very few of these animals are going to survive that transition. Some of them are going to get washed offshore, many of them are going to be eaten by fish or other predators. And even once they settle, they have a lot to contend with before they become big enough to reproduce on their own. So despite the fact that they're spewing millions of eggs and sperm into the water column, perhaps annually, very few of those animals are going to make it to adulthood. And that science is something that I don't think we had a good understanding of when we were fishing these animals as heavily as we were.
0: So they were declared extinct are not extinct but they they came They're on. They're
1: not extinct. That is a very important distinction.
0: <laughs> they got on the endangered species list in what year?
1: In 2001. They were the very first marine invertebrate to be federally listed as endangered.
0: So before we go into this incredible 20-year process of trying to bring them back from the wild the way we have the whooping crane and the California condor, let me ask you how you personally got uh, involved with this whole abalone uh process
1: abalone were not much a part of my life until my 20s i in fact i didn't know what an abalone was until i came to uc davis for graduate school and i didn't know much about the ocean at all in fact i grew up in iowa about as far from the ocean as one can get in the united states of america despite trips to the beach for vacations growing up um, i i didn't know a lot about what what lied beneath the sea But when I came here for graduate school, I fell in love with the ocean, especially intertidal zone, all of the critters that live in tide pools. I was fascinated by them. And when I was at UC Davis Bodega Marine Laboratory as a graduate student, I not only fell in love with the ocean, but I also fell in love with a fellow human being who uh, learned to dive for abalone when he was young. He was about 11 years old when he learned from his uncle. And every year he came to the Northern California coast with his family to dive for abalone. It was a huge part of his family tradition. Our third date was diving for abalone. Um, I guess I should even back up and say that we met scuba diving to survey red abalone populations on the Northern California coast with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And yes, our third date was, was free diving for abalone. My engagement ring, which I still wear years after marriage is an abalone pearl. And we couldn't wait to teach our kids to dive one day.
0: So you've had a successful spawning event.
1: (laughs) That's right. Um, We have two children and it's really interesting. So my, David, you mentioned people having abalone shells just strewn about their yards as decoration because there were so many of them. My family is the same way. We we have these shells that have been collected for generations and we have displayed them in our yard and, and around our house. In fact, during our wedding, we, our, our guests blessed abalone shells for us and, and gave us wishes via abalone shells on our wedding day. And many of these shells have become playthings of my six-year-old. And she has her own abalone farm at home with these shells, just like mom. And as much as this gives me so much pride that my six-year-old pretends to do the same thing at home that mom does at work, it also makes me very sad because her main interaction with these animals is as shells and as a farmer, not as someone who goes into the ocean and collects the gifts from the sea. And I really want to make sure that this more, um, I really want to make sure that she still has that strong connection with the ocean, that we can restore these populations to a place where our kids and grandkids can interact with these animals and their natural habitat.
2: But Kristen, how this really ties into your your work now. Um, so given that you're devoted your life to York, how successful is this effort to grow them in a lab, get them to the point where they can go back into the ocean? Um, what are we looking like um, at success rates?
1: I'm going to start at the beginning because it's interesting when white abalone were first listed on the ESA list, the endangered species list in the U.S we thought they'd be a relatively easy species to save. Not only are there abalone on every continent except for Antarctica, there are also abalone farms on every continent except for Antarctica. We know how to make lots of them in a laboratory or aquaculture setting. So we thought that if we took 20 or 30 of these animals from the ocean, from the remnant population, put them in a breeding facility, we'd be able to make millions of babies easily and put them back out into the wild. We thought the most challenging thing was to figure out how to get them back out in the wild. And in fact, this, this view of how this program would go um, very much manifest itself in the early, early years of the program. So in 2001, and in, in the year, sorry, in the year 2000, we collected about 20 of these remnant animals from the ocean, brought them into a facility in Southern California, spawned them and created over 100,000 juveniles. Considering there are only a few thousand white abalone left in the wild, this was incredibly successful. Unfortunately, when those animals are about a year old, 95% of them died from disease. The disease is called withering syndrome. And at the time, we knew this disease existed in abalone populations on the west coast of North America, but we didn't know how badly it affected white abalone, and there was nothing we could do about it. The things that really helped bring this program to where it is now is a better understanding of this disease. So around this time, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration tried to look for a place to house this program that had the expertise in disease that was necessary to save this species. And they looked no further than us here at UC Davis Bodega Marine Laboratory because we happened to house the state's shellfish health expert. At the time, his name is Jim Moore. So Dr. Moore and his colleagues were instrumental in identifying and tracking and learning to treat this disease, Weathering Syndrome. And he and his colleagues developed an antibiotic bath treatment. You could put the animals in this bath. It would rid them of the bacterium. And As long as you put them on treated seawater to remove any of that bacterium coming to the system, they would remain healthy. The other kind of tangent thing that that Dr. Moore and his colleagues did was they developed a shell waxing treatment for the abalone. I mentioned earlier that when abalone are in the wild, they look like Muppets. They're covered with all of these other organisms and some of those organisms can bore into the abalone shell, making the shell brittle and opening up space for infection. Since we have to handle these animals in captivity a lot, we wanna make sure that they have really healthy, robust shells. So the shell waxing treatment is a combination of organic coconut oil and organic beeswax. You melt it together and paint it on their shell and it suffocates any of those boring organisms that are on that shell. So I like to say that between the cleansing antibiotic baths and the exfoliating waxing treatments, (laughs) we have the most pampered snails in the world here at Bodega Marine Laboratory. We are like the Sonoma County Spa Retreat for Endangered (laughs) Abalone. And getting these, these health issues under control have been incredibly instrumental in the success of this program. Unhealthy animals are not going to be in the mood. Doesn't matter if they're humans or they're snails. And it's really important to have healthy animals to get them to become reproductive and release their gametes. So that way we can create the babies that we need to save the species.
0: Now I feel in very 20- privileged because I got to witness, uh, I won't call it a white abalone orgy, but a reproductive <laughs> event that you encourage. Tell, tell us how you encourage them to reproduce.
1: It's very romantic, David. We put them all in their own individual buckets with this love potion It's a hydrogen peroxide solution and it makes them release whatever gametes they have. So each animal is in its own white bucket. We put them in this solution before dawn. It takes a a while to kind of soak in and make them release whatever they have to give us. But usually about three or four hours into this solution, they release their eggs and sperm and we're able to combine those at really precise ratios to have the highest fertilization rate possible. So the day that you got to join us, David, We had five females spawn and one male spawned a piddly amount of sperm, but it was enough to to fertilize most of the eggs that we got. Those five females spawned 5.7 million eggs. And with all of the embryos that we produced, we were able to ship some to our partner facilities throughout the state of California. So seven total facilities took these animals and they were actually flown via a group called Lighthawk to Southern California the day that they were spawned. And they got to go into their um, new homes at Aquarium of the Pacific and Cabrillo Marine Aquarium and the Cultured Abalone Farm, Southwest Fisheries Science Center, um, the Bay Foundation and Moss Landing Marine Lab. um, Basically on on the day that they respond in addition to having their, their nursery space here at Bodega Marine Laboratory. And all of these partners are really key in saving the species because we all have different amounts of expertise. The abalone farms have been culturing abalone for decades. They have a lot of um, really great knowledge um, about how to to get abalone to tick in a captive setting. And we basically take their best methods and we tweak them um, to make them more appropriate for this endangered species. And the other partners as well have an incredible amount of scientific expertise. Uh, Many of them are public aquaria, so people can go in and see these animals and watch their development, which is really, really cool.
0: So and Heather from the Bay Foundation talks about this as the uh, abalone abalone conveyor belt that you're you're sending these new spawn south and then they're taking the ones that are a few years old and with divers volunteer divers and urchin divers putting them out back out in the wild and and this is really the replanting into the wild is only a few years old now correct? we
1: put white abalone that were produced in our laboratory spaces into the wild for the very first time in late 2019. Mm. So not too much before this pandemic started and the pandemic has certainly slowed down some of this outplanting work because of course to work on boats and scuba dive you need to be close to your buddy um, and have close contact with other people. So we have had fewer outplanted white abalone in the past year than we had hoped for but we're, we're really hopeful that now that we're phasing out of some of the more challenging parts of this pandemic, at least in California, that we can start getting more of them into the ocean in their forever homes. And like Heather said, you know, white abalone are a Southern California species. We're actually out of their north to south range here up in Bodega Bay. And we have the facilities and the expertise to get them through those really sensitive early life history stages. But then the goal is to get them down to Southern California to go out into the ocean where we know that they can really thrive. And I like to call the Bay Foundation, the grand central station of white abalone because they always have animals coming and going out of their facility. (laughs) That's cool. Um, So their range is really Southern California. That's about it. Down in the Baja as well.
2: Okay, super. So it has some, do you have any Mexico or Mexican partners um, that you work with as well as the California
1: sites? We do, yes. We work with Cicese in Ensenada and they have some of our white abalone as well. Mexico is a little bit of a black box when it comes to what the wild population looks like. We're just starting to work with some of the cooperativos to try to understand better what the white abalone populations look like in Baja. And it's interesting when, when an animal lands on the endangered species list in the United States, it means that the federal government is saying that they are taking on the responsibility of restoring the species, not just within the range of the United States, but throughout its entire native range. And so Mexico is a really important part of this equation. We're starting much of our work in the United States because that's where we have the most access and um, it's close to the facilities that that were funded on this work, but we really need to understand the entire range of this population in order to bring it back from the brink.
0: What else don't we know about abalones that everybody should?
1: Ooh, um, one thing that I find really fascinating is that abalone don't have a blood clotting mechanism they're kind of like human hemophiliacs. So we have to be very careful when we harvest them or when we handle them in the lab, not to cut them at all because it could cause them to bleed out and die. Mm, wow,
0: Wow! between wow. that between that and human appetite, it's amazing they're still with us. <laughs> and otters, those voracious marine weasels, they're after them also.
1: Yes, and the, those, those shady octopus, those are the toughest ones. I think that there's <laughs> some of these other predators are easier to perhaps control or to protect them from when we put them out in the wild. But it's, it's hard to, to manage an octopus.
0: We know ocean acidification makes it harder for shell forming critters of all kinds. So sort of, you're both reintroducing the white abalone but also into an ocean that's changing. And how do you adapt for that?
1: Yeah, the abalone that we're putting out in the wild are going into a very different ocean than the, their parents and grandparents experienced. What can we do about that? In some ways, saving white abalone is a numbers game. We need to get as many of them out there as quickly as possible to save the species because they are so close to the brink. But as we do that, we're also trying to understand how we can make sure that these animals thrive in the upcoming decades when we know the ocean is going to continue to change. So I have colleagues that I work with, including Dr. Dan Sweezy, who's the lead scientist at the cultured abalone farm. And we're trying to understand better how climate change might impact these animals. Maybe there's things that we can do both in how we raise them in the lab here and in who their parents are in order to prepare them better for this changing ocean. Maybe there are certain attributes that we can identify in abalone that make them more resilient to climate change. And maybe those are things we want to target. So tell us about what they eat in the in the
2: wild and how that habitat is changing.
1: And maybe there may be a connection to sea otters on this story. Sure. Um, everyone loves an otter story, right? <laughs> Talk about the charismatic critters of the sea. So abalone eat algae. They love seaweed. They love giant kelp. Uh, abalone in our lab mostly eat giant kelp, but we also feed them other things because just like my six-year-old who would prefer to eat sweets all the time. Giant kelp is a little bit like a sweet to an abalone. It's delicious, but doesn't have a lot of nutrients or all of the nutrients that they need. So just like I try to sneak some greens to my kids, um, I also sneak some red algae to my abalone. We use a red algae called dulse. Um, you can buy it at a, at a health food store. It's really high in protein. And that's something that might help them grow a little better. We're also just starting to learn a little bit more about the nutritional needs of abalone, especially for getting them to become reproductive. We think that lipids are a really important part of their diet, that in the wild, they're probably eating a lot of diatoms and other kinds of microfilms that cover the surface of the rocks that they live on, in addition to the macroalgal seaweed that um, we think about when we go through a kelp forest. We also think that white abalone in particular might rely on a lot of drift algae algae that actually becomes dislodged from the substrate because white abalone are so deep compared to the other abalone species. And we often find them on these sand rock interfaces that are known to collect drift kelp. um, We think that that might be a really important part of their diet. Um, And oh, you wanted me to relate to otters. I didn't (laughs) do that. (laughs) Um, I mean, ultimately we, we care about restoring ecosystems not just restoring a species. Our our entire ocean health is is imperiled right now. Um, We have sea star wasting disease. We have lots and lots of animals that have been overfished. We've had these warm water blobs and El Ninos that have really decimated populations. Harmful algal blooms are a really big challenge. And because of that, and because of a lot of human influence, these ecosystems are out of balance and out of whack. It's kind of funny because there there are some people who say like, well, what, what does it mean that both otters and abalone are listed as endangered? How can you save both of them? Isn't that a conflict if one eats the other one? And it isn't at all. There actually have been studies that have shown that when both abalone and otters are present, abalone populations are healthier than when otters are absent. Because when you have a complete ecosystem, you have all the functions of that ecosystem in one place. And that's really, really important. So abalone, absolutely we need to restore. Otters, absolutely we need to restore. We need to we need to look at this holistically. It's a hell of a lot easier to conserve a species at the get-go than it is to try to bring it back from the brink of extinction. This process of saving a species is also holistically thinking about ways to save ourselves. And I often tell people that, 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 that what we are doing is saving white abalone, but we are also saving human beings. Because it is really important to have these intact ecosystems, these healthy populations, in order to support human life on this planet. And so I would really, really like to see some of these outplanting sites that we've established become self-sustaining. I want to see evidence that these animals are spawning and reproducing in the wild, not just in my lab. Yeah, well, that's a
2: wonderful goal, and I, I certainly hope that you are successful.
0: So... From the lab to the wild, we're hoping and we're thanking you again, both for your work and for being with us today on Rising Tide. We really appreciate Thanks, David. it. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple. Google or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier. Dear, dear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier.
0: Sparky, come here buddy!
2: Sparky, there you are, good boy Sparky!